Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm James. And I'm Callum, and this is the only podcast that's Mrs. Two Hearts to you. And as with every week, we take a look at the latest episode of the Doctor Who revival. And when I say latest, I mean it because we're looking at chapter two of Flux, War of the Sontarans. But before that, uh, as with every week, just a quick reminder that you too can join in the banter. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Two Hearts Pod. That's the number two. And you can email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's to the word two. And you can have your thoughts and feelings shared on the show. We'd absolutely love to hear from you as we take on the flux together week after week here on Two Hearts. Speaking of which, let's talk all things Potato Boys with this week's episode. James. James, 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 James. War of the Sontarans. War, the, the, the War of the Sontarans, War of the Sontarans, I'm not sure. Either way, second episode of series 13 of the Doctor Who revival, written by Chris Chibnall, directed by James Mag- Jamie Magnus Stone, once again returning from the Halloween apocalypse. Um, uh, yeah, look, okay. This one is slightly more complicated than last week. Um, I, you know, we run, we are on record as both being pleasantly surprised by the Halloween apocalypse. I think we had a pretty good time with that. And watching the War of the Sontarans, I, everything that's related to the Flux, I loved. And I mean, like, listen, when I say I loved, I mean, like, I am thrilled with some of this Doctor Who stuff. Uh, everything related to the Santarans made me want to go back to bed. Um, so that's pretty much where I'm at. How about you? I don't know why, but that made me think of whenever I think of Santarans, I think I'm back in the flux. <laughs> I can't stand Santarans. <laughs> <laughs> that's one for our fans who listen or watch uh i think you should leave um yeah very very niche this is the second time we've told you to listen to that <laughs> watch that show oh. <laughs> <laughs> um look yes all right mm. war of the sontarans i am slightly biased because i do love sontarans and so seeing them back here again was like a little flutter of the old fan heart um as a story i think it's got a lot of potential that isn't capitalized on quite so much and there's a lot of time devoted to some kind of boring scenes and it's that it's more frustrating than anything else because i think that there is actually a good story here and i I think i'm not so surprised that doctor who like in telling a season-long story, uh, has ditched it (laughs) in its second episode. (laughs) I kind of always assumed that would be the case because it's still an episodic show. I I assumed that there would be threads throughout, but it would still have, like, individual stories week on week on week. I think the problem is that, like, (laughs) the actual core story they're telling across these six episodes is far more interesting than anything they have to say this week. And... Uh, that mm, it's kind of like, I wish that they would trust those instincts more. The same instincts that brought us like the best parts of season 11 are here too. And I wish they just listened to them more, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a really good way of summarizing it. Um, I know last week when we talked about Halloween Apocalypse, we kind of, um, we, re- we reverted back to a very old way that we used to uh, sort of look at these episodes, which was kind of go plot beat by plot beat. Um, we fortunately, I mean, this week does slow down quite a bit by comparison. Um, there are, there are, I'd say there are three major plots. Um, but we've sort of broken them up into each one. And so I think it'd probably be best if we kind of tackled them piece by piece because they do feel uh, not separate from each other um, but like A and B go hand in hand and then there's the the flux of it all which kind of is the, the footnote to this episode unfortunately like you said it chooses not to focus on that most interesting part um, so I want to kind of leave that one for the end because I want to end on, on, on a high note with this let's start by taking a look at well, I guess first of all, where we where we end up from last week's cliffhanger, mm. you know, like you and I had joked to each other that Doctor Who as a show is not very good at, you know, capitalizing on those cliffhangers, and this episode very much moffets it, where it's just like, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's weird because it like it tries to both like hand wave it away and give an explanation, and no, neither of them are particularly satisfying. And like when I say hand wave it away, it's kind of like they. And they they all wake up on this battlefield and they're like, how do we get here? Oh, I don't know. Don't think about it. And then later the doctor offers us a explanation and she's like, oh, I think we were thrown out when the Carvinista ships merged or something like that. And the Carvinista ships merging, providing a plot point for this episode is not the first time this will happen. And it just feels <laughs> so like, I think the main problem with it is like, because we didn't see that happen at all. And the sense of time and scale in that uh, end of the last episode is so not defined that for them to say that, it's just like, I don't get it. (laughs) And I don't, (laughs) I don't think that's a bad criticism. I like, if you don't get something, that's, I, sometimes that is the episode's fault for not depicting it clearly. Uh, Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. Um, It's just... Uh, there's a part of me that's like, oh, okay. Did you just not have the budget to film some of this connective tissue is, is maybe the vibe I get from, from these sort of particular choices. Um, the only part of the way they handle the cliffhanger that I really enjoyed, and I've seen a lot of people on Twitter sort of losing their minds over this rightfully. So is that before the doctor wakes up on the battlefield in Crimea, um, there is a weird black and white, kind of force vision flash sideways something or other of the doctor standing in another field and in front of her is a floating dilapidated expanding house it is so out of place and confusing and it's never mentioned again in this episode which is actually a degree of restraint i'm impressed by Hmm. like it's it's just a little nugget that they they provide for you and then take it away again um what do you think about this can i offer my um, theory. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a lot of people online suggest that it might be the doctor's ancestral home, uh, which is a big thing, a big doctor who legacy fable thing about like an episode called lung barrow that was supposed to be made in the eighties that was going to explore the doctor's ancestral home. It's very Gothic, very, um, gormengast kind of stuff. Um, they never made the story, but they did adapt it for, uh, for a book. I, I think, cause I noticed that the house was like floating specifically floating over a lake in a quarry. Mm-hmm. 
Now, where else have we seen this in a Chibnall era episode, you may ask? Oh, a little temple uh, in Battle of Rantscore Avcolos, perhaps? And that's Are I'm- you suggesting we're going back to Rantscore Avcolos? <laughs> I'm suggesting that there might be some connective tissue there. Um, I don't want it to I, be I, true. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't want that to be true. <laughs> but I'm suggesting it nonetheless. I would really appreciate if this was far less literal and much more of like a big merit- metaphorical swing. Um, I, I don't care if it's the TARDIS interior that's showing uh, the Doctor like uh, a manifestation of its dilapidating self. I, I don't really mind. Um, I just hope that it's interesting um, because the little tease that it gives you, despite obviously, you know, it's, it's in black and white, stylistically quite different to the rest of the episode. Um, <clears throat> it's... It's just fun. It's neat. And and, uh, for an episode that largely kind of eschews the fun mystery stuff that we liked so much about last week, this felt very much in place with last week's like chaotic information dump. Um, Mm. So I I was very here for that. Um, Outside of that, though, uh, so we find out that the Doctor, Yaz and Dan have landed in the Crimean War in 1855. Um, But it's not long before Dan and Yaz get ripped away from the Doctor. (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny old um, moment. It kind of makes you wonder why a lot does happen before that moment, but there's a lot, um, there's a, you're sort of like, why did they have to be here at all? Why didn't they all just wake up in their separate mm, uh, sections? Yeah. Because there's kind of like, ooh, I think flux and, and vortex energy is mixing to make this happen. And it's like, how do you even know anything about the flux to think that that would happen, <laughs> Doctor? Um, I wanna, like you and I made that joke. I don't know if we made it on air or or not, but like we joked that her feeding the vortex energy to the flux would just mean that the flux could travel in time now, and it seems like that's literally what's happening. Um, so I, I found that very funny. Yeah, well, mm, I didn't. <laughs> I found it annoying, but I'm glad you were tickled by it. No, I thought it was. I thought it was good. Um, um, so yeah, Dan gets ripped away to Dan's B plot and Yaz to the C plot, um, which obviously we'll touch on it in due course. The the scene where they both start fading away, like Marty McFly style, though, um, I thought was cute. It, it was nice to see you know uh, thirteen get to have a very like. Matt, not Matt Smith, a uh, very Tennant-esque moment where he's like, oh, I'll, I'll find you. You know, I, I promise. I, I thought that was a nice little dramatic beat for her and Yaz. I agree. I especially like the way that Jodie delivers the I promise line where she kind of like lunges forward and goes, and her voice goes up. She's like, I promise. <laughs> and then, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. You do believe that they have been traveling together for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, generally speaking, uh, I really enjoy Jodie in this episode um I think her performance uh is is pretty consistent I I tweeted about this from our our two hearts account earlier today but like I I like it when the show lets her not just be the exposition techno you know jumble of word dumping because Mm. in those moments where she doesn't have to perform that so very Chibnall-esque perfunctory role um she's bringing so much more 
subtleness. And uh, I, 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 look, I know that's an interesting word to throw on with Jodie Whittaker's Doctor because one of the biggest criticisms of her and one that I've certainly had myself is that she sometimes does go too broad with the character in her characterization or too loud with it. Mm. it. It stops being like, ha-ha, it just kind of becomes a bit goofy sometimes. Um, whereas I think in this season, what we've seen so far across these, I mean, just two episodes, is a really healthy balance between, you know, she pulls funny faces, uh, she has one of my the, the hardest I've laughed at Doctor Who in a while is um, she's giving um, a presentation on, on my war tactics or whatever to, to the general character and she's like so why do they go back into their ships and he goes I and she just lunges forward she's like I'll tell you why she's so <laughs> dialed into like the funny um, just carefree elements of the Doctor in those moments. And and I really, really resonate with that. I think she's doing a great job. And you balance that with how she was last week. And you see some flashes of it here where she's quite closed off and not cruel, but she's carrying this embodiment of like, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm done hand-holding people through my shit. Um, I just need to go and get my shit done at this point. Um, and I, I think that those two together are finally giving this version of the Doctor a bit of nuance and depth that we were maybe missing from the last two seasons. I mean, I kind of think that the, the Jodie Doctor we see in this episode is of akin to the way we've seen her in the past. I don't note that there's any changed characterization. I guess just having a broader goal to go to work towards um, mm, works well for her and her energy. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'd agree with that. I think it's just more in like the, the maybe the, just like the small elements of her performance. I, I think, I don't know. I just, I believe her a bit more as the doctor this time. I still think that Chibnall's writing, and this is something that we're going to have to talk about with this episode because it, it really comes to bear here for me is that I... I don't think he's a fantastic moment-to-moment writer. I think he's got some pretty good ideas going on here, and there is some stuff in here that I really love, but when he's just got Jodie running around just spouting out exposition after exposition, he just... He's he he's not a very organic writer in that sense. It, it feels very workmanlike, the way he has her work through these plots. Um, and... That part definitely reminds me of what we've seen over the past two seasons. Uh, I'm just getting flashes in between where it feels like they've tapped into something a little bit deeper this time. Uh, agreed. Agreed. They, <clears throat> well, maybe it's just time, you know, just having had time yeah. to be with this character. It probably helps that it's Chibnall and Jody have had this plan, I suppose you could say, um, since day dot and are seeing it through. I think that's one of the things we noted last week and as we spoke about before we recorded this episode is that we're just very pleased that uh, the timeless child, the division, those things that have been seeded are not going away. Um, mm, and so yes. for better or for worse, we are seeing the culmination of this plan, which is good. Uh, yeah, uh, agreed. Agreed. Like you said, it's good to have a, uh, a destination in, in mind is, is what this feels like. Um, so yeah, the doctor gets left behind in the Crimean war. She discovers that, um, in a, in a very confusing plot point, uh, Russia never existed, <laughs> but Sontar does. Um, so Russia and China have been wiped off the map. Sontar exists in its place, implying that the Sontarans have been a part of human history for fucking ever, yeah. um, which, you know, is addressed in the show when you know the the uh was it um her name is not mrs sequel uh it is sequel sequel 
C. Cole, uh, Mr. C. Cole, uh, the, the, you know, very real historical figure, wartime nurse, yada, yada, yada. This is, you know, Chibnall's historical sort of, um, uh, flair, let's say, um, you know, and there's, there's an army general there as well. And they're like, oh, you know, like we, we remember the word Russia. We just can't place it from anything. And, and it's kind of explained that the, what flux and that time vortex energy has done is just cause like temporal, uh, disruptions of some sort. And because they're so recent, people still have a memory of the other timeline, which is like a really interesting concept. Like I, the concept of time itself being corrupted is something we're actually going to get to a little bit later in this, this exact episode. Um, but they, they really go out of their way to be like, oh no, the Sontarans just landed here through time travel machines somehow. But you're equally confused by this, right? I am, and it's sort of, it's difficult to keep to our, like, A, B, C plot when we're talking about this, because it's so intertwined with the B plot of the present day. Um, True, true. And so... Let's bring him in. Let's bring in Dan. Let's bring in Dan. Let's bring in Dan. So Dan, he zooms forward in time to his present day Liverpool. His house is still missing. Um, But in this (laughs) era, the Sontarians have been invaded. It seems like only a few days ago have they invaded and um, are taking over the world from Liverpool, weirdly. Um, <laughs> the, the the problem, I as I perceive it, is that, like, we have in the past this Sontar- Sontars on the map. Uh, they've always been on Earth. They're invading here in the Crimea. Um, but it's very much implicated that they've only recently arrived because of disruption in time. And it would seem that the same is true in the future. But, like, there's also alternate explanations given where they have time ships and are able to time travel from the past to the future and vice versa. And also, seemingly, have two separate plots, I guess, for invasion. One in the past where they seeded themselves <laughs> into, into Earth's history and one in the present where they just managed to sneak past the Carvanista shield to get to Earth. And it's sort of, it, well, it's not sort of, it's very confusing and uh, an- annoying because these two <laughs> plots should have more of an organic cause and effect between them. And they don't. The resolution to the Sontarans in the present is that Carvanista and Dan uh, guide one of their ships to crash into each other to to destroy all the Sontaran ships, um, which Carvanista says is a temporal implosion, thereby they just all disappear. Um, But, like, that is so strange when you have Sontarans in the past invading, and I feel like a cleverer (laughs) script would have had (laughs) what's happening in the past affect what's happening in the future... And the Doctor and Dan communicating in that respect. Because there's this weird scene where the Doctor and Dan are, like, talking through the Sontaran ships. But they're not in the same time. <laughs> like, how are they talking over time through this recording? It Yeah. It's just... it's There's so many things left unexplained or ill-explained, I would probably say, about mm. the Sontarans in this episode. And it makes for a really frustrating viewing experience. It does, especially like when we said when it is the the A plot and the B plot, you know, it's so much of this episode is concerned with this and that it gets it 
this muddled is really frustrating. I'm like, you know, I, I definitely feel a little bit like that Simpsons character where he's like, oh, well, um, actually, when you struck the same bone, it made two different sounds in the second episode of the fifth season. Like, I, I get that we sound just like petulant nerds when we complain about this stuff. But I also think that that is sometimes used as a bit of a way to dismiss genuine problems with a with a plot or, or with the way that something is written and like you know I've watched this episode twice um I, I said to you like I sat down and I watched this a second time with subtitles I rewound scenes to try to better understand what was actually going on here and it's still confusing like it is just not very well written um and that it makes up the bulk of this episode that it's the second episode after we've kicked off this major you know it's called flux and yet Flux itself is is very has very little to do with the actual you know like you said that that time effect isn't what's going on here it's just oh the Sontarans have time traveling ships now somehow that's the major sort of like thrust of the plot and the doctor doesn't seem to give a shit about that part at all um and so you just I find myself not giving a shit either let alone that I don't like the Sontarans anyway um but I guess that's a that's a whole other problem um We've brought up Dan, and I know that we're, I'm already breaking my, like, oh, A plot, B plot discussion uh, premise here, but I do want to talk about the Dan in modern day stuff, because we meet Dan's parents, and they are the closest we've gotten to RTD's version of humans in this era of the show. Um, and when you put them next to Chibnall's version of humans, it feels like watching a bunch of robots interact. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I genuinely have zero thoughts or feelings about Dan's parents. I don't they I don't even know why they're there. Especially because the end of the episode comes along and the doctor's like, Do you wanna come with me? And he's like, Oh, okay. and just <laughs> forgets that he has parents and that they may have possibly be affected by trauma by being invaded by aliens. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. Well, they don't seem particularly traumatized, do they? They're just kind of like, oh, you said they'd be gone by the weekend. Like, what? What? I, what? I'm sorry. Is, is humanity being invaded or not? Like, <laughs> what? I've got to be honest with you. I think they're just bad actors because that mum, whoever plays her, I'm not even bothering to look her up. <laughs> when she comes on screen, her first line is, where the hell have you been? <laughs> it's like, could you maybe like dial it down a bit? character. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so, it's so odd. Um, and I mean, look, I, I guess it, it could have been, but that's the thing. It's not even a chance for them to like further develop Dan as a character. Like, I don't feel like I know any more about him now other than that, like one little, I don't know, I guess his dad was like a, a, a football guy or some, some bullshit. It's like, yeah, great. Cool. That like, how did Dan's parents feel about him living in poverty? Is that <laughs> talked about at all? No, like it's just, it's just a bit of a, a nothing addition to the story. And like, this also builds off a problem I had last week with Dan, where when he's left to his own devices, um, he doesn't function the way a human being functions. Um, he, he gets thrown back to the present day, finds out about this invasion, and then instantly is like, well, I've got to go and climb into one of their ships. It's what the doctor would do. Mm. And it's like, you don't know the doctor. You're not an established companion. We, we've got nothing about your motivations as a human being that would explain to me why you're so suicidal about this. Um, you know, and then he pulls out his phone. His phone, for some reason, has the little, like, recording light and battery symbol that a VHS record has it, it was such an odd inclusion um 
but yeah, I, I just, I, Dan to me is when he's on his own, I, I, I really don't much care for him. I think when he's got people to bounce off of, you get that more wholesome, sweet, well-rounded Dan that we like so much. Um, and it culminates for me in this episode with this awful joke <laughs> where the, <laughs> the doctor and Dan are communicating, like he said, via time computers or whatever. Um, and he's like, yeah. And they're obsessed with Japanese food. They keep talking about tempura. And it's like, uh, how are you this dumb? Yeah. <laughs> Especially because in other moments, the, the, the Dan humor is used quite well. Like there's the joke where mm-hmm. the son, he f- discovered by a Sontaran and he's like, Oh, I was just looking for the bear. Eh? And as a way to distract it and ends up knocking it out. And then four more enter and he does, he says the same thing again. And it, yeah. you just, it invites you to think about like the, like, oh, how many times is this going to happen kind of thing. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a good balance between like silly and intelligent joke, you know, like it, and it's, it's about writing things that way. Whereas like everything else about Dan sometimes just feels I don't know, way, way too silly. Um, and it's a shame because I think, um, what is the guy's name? John Bishop. John Bishop. I think John Bishop is like showing up to work. He looks like he's having the time of his life. Um, and I'm genuinely happy for him. Um, when he's with Coven Easter, he's great. When he's with Yaz, he's great. I just think that, yeah, it's just a bit wobbly with Dan at the moment. Characterization isn't there. Um, mm. I don't know. We'll, we'll see well, how that we'll, we'll the, see how that develops. The main problem I perceive it is that like this is only his second episode and he's already been like uh, isolated from the Doctor. I feel like he's had mm. zero time with her. And it's funny because you pointed out like at the top of the episode, the Doctor's like, Yaz, where's Dan? Where's Dan? And it's like, Mm. Who do you even know his name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I didn't know you knew Dan really existed because, like we said last week, she is disinterested in Dan's presence. She's very much focused on just doing her own thing, and that was a characterization that you know you thought was quite off-putting, and I I liked in an off-putting way. It was an interesting choice, and then it feels like in this week they're like, oh no, don't worry about it. He's just he's part of the fam. Um, mm. So yeah, just again, those chibnall inconsistencies that that sort of drag down what should be an otherwise smooth transition between episodes, especially given that he's writing all of them, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You think he could be a bit more consistent, but a no. Mm. <laughs> no, no. Um, is, is there anything you want to say about, I mean, let's talk about the Sontarans, all right? Like, where you like them. Explain that to me. <laughs> I think when I say that I like them, I like them based on my memories of them. Um, the War Games, sorry, not the War Games. The Time Warrior is a great story. It's Sarah Jane's first story. It's the first episode of John Pertwee's last season. The link, the Sontaran is used in that episode makes perfect sense because they, like, balance his, like, night from the stars kind of aspect, this, the Sontaran in that episode, with the medieval knights, um, there's some really good, like, banter. And it's the comedy stuff with Lynx is used to great effect when mirrored with the human characters he's interacting with. I think from that point on, the Sontarans have got progressively worse. Um, and never really right ever again. Because, like, the Sontarans are comedy aliens. They just are. They can be played straight, but they ha- ultimately function in a very comedic, non-threatening kind of way. Because... They look like fucking trolls, right? Um, <laughs> I think this episode gets a lot of the balance of humour and warlike militaristic stuff right. 
Um, and it is definitely a, if we're going to talk about comedy, I don't think it's ever mm. funny, but it does at least make sense in context better than that little scene we had last week with them where they're just like, oh, you look gross. Yep. Oh, you look so fucking disgusting. Oh uh, yeah, I get it. Um, like <laughs> that was just a weird exchange of dialogue here. Like, you know, there's the bit at the end where she's like, you'll be leaving now. And he's like, I would never say that we'll make a tactical withdrawal. And it's like, yeah, I don't mm. find that funny, but I understand that that's a joke. And I also understand it makes sense <laughs> as you, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that it's just, sorry, I just really enjoyed, I understand that that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, um, it's pretty, yeah. Um, demeaning, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I like, I love the design of them. Generally, I love the design of them and I think they've hit the right balance again here. Um, I just think in terms of story terms, there's just not a lot you can do with them unless you change them and you can't change them because they're clones. And that aspect is the only aspect of them that I find baffling that they've not actually like ever touched on. The fact that they are a clone race. They just reproduce and reproduce mm. and reproduce. And it feels like every time they do Sontarans, it's like, what do Sontarans do? Oh, war. We'll just do another war story. Oh, war's bad. Oh, <laughs> you killed the people that do war. Oh, you're evil. It's like, we've gone through this a million fucking times. Mm. Yeah. I mean, look, you pretty much summed up my my issues with them there. Like, it, I just... They don't have any of the, like, menace of the Daleks. They're not particularly funny to me. And I think thematically they're about, you know, as deep as a puddle. Um, and so I just kind of, I just, I, I'm left really cold by a lot of the Sontaran stories. Um, you know, we obviously just did the uh, Poison Sky two-parter um, in, in our main line. And, you know... I didn't particularly care for the kind of ingrained sexism that they gave the Sontarans in that episode, but at least in retrospect, it was a character trait. Mm. Um, and especially in this episode that ostensibly pays a lot of lip service to gender politics, but just will not touch it with a 10 foot pole in any actual meaningful way. Um, this, it would have made sense here. You know, like, you have to sometimes go back in time and be like, yeah, we landed in a really sexist time. We're inherently a bit sexist ourselves. This feels great. You know, that would have been doing something. Um, but instead, they're just, I don't know, they're just happy to kill things here. And then... That's all they do. All right, cool. Yeah. And you know the other they do. really annoying part of it is like, so the resolution is the doctor, uh, I don't know, disrupts their feeding tubes and makes them retreat. And it's all like a win for the doctor. And then she's like, and then the captain of the... English guards are like, oh, is that all you think's going to happen? And it turns out that he's rigged all the ships to explode. And the doctor's like, what does she, she say? She's like, um, you know, oh, they were retreating. Oh, I'm sick of you humans. You're always blowing things up. And it's like, they would have come back and killed you. They have no remorse. Yeah. And I just, <laughs> sometimes the, the moralistic, like, viewpoint of the doctor is so black and white and not particularly nuanced. And I think sometimes we can afford to have a story where it's like, yeah, the journal, the general made the tough decision of killing them, mm. but the alternative is far worse. And I think that it, it, it deserves a much more nuanced conversation than I'm able to give it in like two seconds, but you know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah, no, I, I do. And I mean, I think this is generally a problem with Chibnall's writing of, of Doctor Who is that, um, like with the, the arachnids in the UK gun stuff, it's just, it's the, it's the aesthetics of a moral code, you know? Mm. Like, there, there's nothing beyond that level because, like you said, yeah, like, she in this very episode spends the episode calling them ugly, mocking them, talking about how they're completely mindless killing machines and they're all awful, blah, blah, blah. And then at the very end, she's like, but don't kill them. Come on, guys. <laughs> I just, yeah, it, it's, it's just a bit weak for me, especially because that whole like, oh, Earth is under my protection and whatnot. That threat means nothing if you're not actually going to do anything to protect the Earth from a force that doesn't care about threats like that. You know, like you eventually have to do something to protect the Earth. Um, and so I do wish, like you said, that there was room for her to maintain that moral high ground because I think it's intrinsically part of the Doctor's character that, like, she would never light the fuse herself, you know? Um, but maybe to just kind of be like, huh, I get it. That sucks, but I get it. And there's no good ending here. Goodbye. You know, like, that That would feel more in line with maybe a, a more mature take on this story, I'd say. Um, but we don't get that. She also doesn't blink when Carvanista and Dan are like, oh yeah, we just blipped a bunch of them out of existence. It's like, so is, is that okay? Like, yeah. See, it's not, none of it's consistent. It's just bad. No. It's, it's, it's just bad. Um, I, I kind of struggle to think about anything that I particularly cared for in the, in the Sontara and parts of this episode. Um, I sort of like, you know, again, Jodie's performance was great, but that's that's about it. Jodie's performance is great, and I think we're seeing her go from strength to strength each episode. That's true. I I, I do have a soft spot for Mary Seacole. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I couldn't I couldn't say that it's a a good performance necessarily, but it um or even a well it's not it's not a well written character. Like there's that weird bit <laughs> where she's like, "Oh, Mary, you've done some obs- observing, have you? Let's have a look." She flips through the notebooks. Oh, you've done some great observing. All right, let's get going. And it's like, <laughs> what, what is it, what is Mary's function in this episode? And ultimately, it's just to be a quasi-companion. But then it's kind of like, yeah. well, since I don't see the point in the future stuff with the Sontarans, I don't know why this couldn't have been Dan's role in this episode. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I guess I'm just not a very good writer. <laughs> I guess I'm just a bad fan. Um, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I, I don't even feel necessarily like all that negative about it. I, I was just bored, you know, and mm. and that's that's sometimes worse for me with, with Doctor Who stories. Like, I just was just really not not particularly engaged. Uh, I'm sort of going over my notes to see if there's anything else that stood out in the Santaran elements, um, no. but I I think we kind of covered it. I want to talk about that temple. Let's, oh, oh my God. Let's travel to a planet called time <laughs> and the temple of a- Atropos. Atropos. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, so C plot. C plot is where Doctor Who Flux actually is happening. Um, so here is where we get updates with Yaz and with um, uh, Swarm and Azura. Uh, Azura or Azura? Azura. Azure. Oh, there we go. That's good. That's good. Um, and we meet one of our, a new villain as well, uh, Passenger. So yeah, Yaz ends up in this temple 
um, where she, oh, I guess she first, she runs into the old man who was like building the tunnels in the first episode, right? It's a weird little scene. Yeah. Where he's, she's like, I, I watched it back this morning and she sees him and she's not like, who the fuck are you? She's like, what did she say? She's like, are you lost, sir? Or hello, sir. How can I help you, sir? Yeah. It's like, um, <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, the, the one part about their exchange I really enjoyed was when she was like, what year is it? And he's like, why would that matter to you? And like, he kind of, he gets that dawning realization that like, oh, you understand time differently in the way I do as well. Like, I thought that was a nice bit of subtle characterization. I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. Um, yeah. I, uh, I generally have a theory that the temple is going to be the tunnels he was building, but I don't know how it all fits up. So I'm just putting that out there. If I'm right, I win a million dollars. Right. Right. I'll buy you a Coke. Thanks. Um, yeah. So, so he kind of, he just walks away. He trundles along back to his own plot, which I'm sure we'll catch up to in time. <laughs> um, and, and Yaz sort of progresses deeper into the temple where she finds Vinda, who uh, has also been thrown here somehow. Um, and the two of them get like a really, a good couple of scenes together where they're just investigating the temple. And it's very, it, there's a mystery to it. It's, it feels very low stakes in that moment. At least it's just kind of two people riffing off each other, been like, where the fuck are we? Mm. Um, their intro, broadly speaking, I, I think Mandip Gill, much like Jodie Whittaker, has truly stepped into the role here. Like, I, I think her portrayal of Yaz in this episode is full-bodied Yaz. And there's a couple of, like, uh, particular moments I want to talk about with that. One of them we'll get to in a minute. But the first one, Vinder introduces himself in a very, like, he, you know, he sees that it's a pretty, it's it's a very traditional scene. He sees it's a pretty girl. He holsters his gun and he's like, oh, hello, uh, Captain Vinder of the, you know, 5th Battalion of blah, blah, blah. Um, and she's walking down the stairs at the time and with the most casual, sexy little, like, fucking, like, shimmy down the stairs, she's like, oh, well, you know, if we're being formal, I'm, you know, Lieutenant blah, blah, blah of Sheffield Police Station. Um, and it's just there's Yaz. Like that's, that's the Yaz I want to see more of. Like confident knows what she's there for. Um, I just loved it. It's really good, isn't it? And the way that they have that kind of, I, I, I think Yaz, uh, Vinda, the guy who plays Vinda, um, mm. bounces off really Gorgeous. well from her, even though we only see them for just the scant just of seconds, really. Um, I think they have a good, already have a good chemistry. Um, which I hope will be developed in coming episodes. Yeah. And I mean, that's the flip side to my, my problem with this scene is that like immediately uh, they start making kind of like flirty eyes at each other. And I was like, ah, okay. That's why the doctor and Yaz aren't together. Um, Look, and obviously nothing's ever that clean cut. Like stories aren't generally written this way, but it did remind me very much of, again, that Rise of Skywalker, like let's introduce uh, a third party love interest to one of our main characters so that we can avert any sort of queer conversations. Um, And it's it's just I like Vinda I like the actor that plays Vinda I would be happy if Yaz and Vinda end up together because I think they're cute um, but still it it's like oh come on it reads very much as like in the classic series where a companion would meet somebody and then a few episodes later they'd be like oh I'm getting married and I'm leaving you for him <laughs> and spy uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen. Is actually, does Yaz, I think she is going on to the very, very last Jodie episode. So we won't see her leave in this story yet. Oh, is she? I think she was filming it. Yes. Cool. 
Okay, I'm, I'm down for that then. Um, anyway, so the two of them meet up. Uh, they are confronted by these, like, floating triangle hmm. sentry robot things that are like, can you repair? <laughs> and it's, I love it. I love it. So, it feels very classic Who to me. This, this whole section has so much classic Who stuff going for it. I mean, just the concept of a temple of time is pretty classic Who. But also, like... The, the temple design reminds me of the Armageddon factor uh, of the... There's a set that it reminds me of. It also... The floating or um, priest things. It's like the Megara from the Key to Time. The passenger, who we'll get to, looks a lot like the shadow from that story. A lot of that stuff really does harken back to the Key of Time. Especially the fact that it's a temple of time. Which makes me think there's something <laughs> going on there. Again, pure speculation. Not at all substantiated by anything. No, but it's fun that it actually can inspire that level of speculation, Mm. Um, you know, because I feel like so much of series 12 was just like, like, yeah, like, oh, what is the timeless child was like the core kind of thing of of that series. But moment to moment, it was just like, oh, now they're Cybermen or or whatever, you know. Um, And so here to to truly feel like we're in uncharted waters with Chibnall's writing is the most interesting thing he has going for him right now. Um, So (laughs) enter... Uh, my, my boy and his, and his family, um, uh, Swarm shows up. Swarm, now, I know that this is silly, hmm. uh, I know that this is probably very unsubstantiated, but everyone else that shows up in this temple, uh, we see Yaz wake up there, we see Vinda wake, or Yaz kind of fades in from the time breaking and whatnot. Vinda just wakes up there. Uh, the TARDIS eventually does show up there and it, get, it gets pulled there. Swarm, though... He shows up, he just materializes with a sound effect that to me was slightly, slightly hinting at like, that's like kind of like what a TARDIS sounds like when it appears. And what? that is my pie in the sky. When I watched it back today, when he materializes, there's this weird kind of backing, like, like not, not quite that intense, obviously, but man, it got me so excited at the idea of like, uh, creatures who could essentially function the way the TARDIS does, where they just kind of rip in and out of reality. Um, very cool. Very here for it. Uh, so yeah, Swarm and Azure show up. Um, we get to see Azure deliver one of the best lines Chibnall's ever written. So simple. Uh, one of those little robot things comes up to her. He's like, oh, you know, identify. And she like takes it in her hands and she's like, I am Azure. I am death. It's like, yes, cheesy dramatic here for it like it feels like this is flux arriving to me yeah there it's just such a confident writing characterization performance mixture of everything design um Mm -hmm. like they feel so effortless in a way that we haven't had you know you think back to tim shaw you think back to ashad like those were characters searching for their intention these guys are just like, we're here, mm-hmm. we're fucked, you're fucked, and let's yeah. all have a great time. Uh, yeah, it's like you said, like that very confident characterization, and a lot of that obviously is coming from, uh, so Swarm is played by Sam Spur- Spurl, and um, 
Azure is played by Rashinda Sandal. I'm terrible with these names. I'm never going to use them again, but I wanted to give them a shout out because they are bringing so much physicality to these villains. Um, obviously, prosthetic and makeup wise, I have very much adapted to any element of them that I initially thought looked a little bit cheesy. Now I think it just looks fantastic. To me, it just reads as very Doctor Who. Mm. Um, and so now to see them moving around these physical spaces in those like ultra done up like suit and dress combinations it's very much like you know yes obviously he's in a, a man's suit but it's very like broad in at the waist he almost looks cinched um <laughs> he look he is queer coded to me i think the way that he talks the way he moves around the space is very queer coded his best friend is his sister he has a big muscle man with him i'm just saying it's there for me not to uh, mention and i'm very here for it not to mention like his extreme jealousy over the doctor and her companions truly exactly and that's it like it's not just the physicality of these performances but also you know chibnall's writing here is actually excelling quite well um so you know swarm and and the gang show up and uh he immediately has this amazing back and forth with yaz where um so it's established earlier in yaz's story here that she's got um was it wwt double d written on the palm of her hand Mm. you know what would the doctor do Mm -hmm. Uh, a very sweet thing uh obviously very reminiscent of clara my favorite so i'm i'm very here for all of that kind of characterization um and so swarm kind of uh she tries to introduce herself to him or or kind of be like hey identify yourself kind of thing in the way that you know the doctor would um and swarm's just like oh yasmin khan does the doctor know you're out this late and immediately disarms her and you know um to and to mandip gill's credit she cycles through like fear uncertainty trying to shore herself up again and then a facade of confidence in the span of like five seconds on screen it's the best acting i've ever seen her deliver in the show um and you get this amazing exchange between the two of them where he he gets up to her and he goes really in her face and he's like you know why does she choose you you're so unremarkable and you independent of each other like i put it in my show notes and then callum messaged me this while he was watching it but like we both said he acts so jealous of the companion Mm. in my interpretation it's the way an ex-lover would be you you feel slightly different about it but we do land on that same kind of vibe oh no i agree with you i i i, I just know the show and i imagine it will be an ex-companion yeah kind of vibe <laughs> um yeah yeah uh, yeah, I mean, that ties in with what I said last week about how that first scene where they get to have a proper chat in her, like, mind palace or whatever, where he's <laughs> like, oh, we danced across the stars. And I was like, oh, that's a very, that's very romantic language. Um, and the way that he's, like, getting very close to her feels very intimate. And so I like those implications that are in this story. I think having Azure be his sister also removes any, like, you know, oh, they're, they're you know, husband and wife or, like, they're in love and they're evil together. It's like, no, no. He exists in his own way. And and I, I just, I wonder what kind of dynamic he used to have with the Doctor and if we're going to maybe get to explore that a bit more. I sort of theorize or not theorize because it's not backed up by anything, but like, I can't help think about like the fact that the Doctor as the fugitive Doctor as we knew them was a much more ruthless, militaristic, mm. uh, violent even kind of person. And so it, <laughs> there's there's not i don't necessarily see a world in which the doctor was quote unquote evil but perhaps Mm. a world in which she enjoyed a much more intimate relationship with somebody as evil as swarm to the point of like maybe some 
sexual nature. I don't know. Um, mm. It just, it does feel very much like Swarm is suited to whoever that doctor was. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Um, the, the plot stuff surrounding um, the temple and, and what Swarm wants to do here is uh, equally as interesting and confusing to me as mm-hmm. well. Um, I, I do want to highlight one particular line that he has before we go into what they, they end up sort of talking about here. But he's monologuing to um, what we learn are the, the, the Mori, which seem to be this like circle of statuesque uh, women who have, you know, very like, you know, odd alien makeup on and, and, and whatnot. Um, and they're all standing around and two of them have already been broken. And that's what the little repair guy wants you to, to be them to be fixing. Um, and as he's monologuing to them about, cause this is apparently the second time they've been here. Um, the temple knows who they are and it's afraid of them. Mm. And he's like, you pathetic temporal hags. And I was like, honey, you, you are so gay. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting little tidbits given away about this temple, right? Like the little mm. comment that Vinder makes about, oh, the, this couldn't be the temple of Atropos or, um, you know, mm. the whole, like, it's on the planet of time stuff. Like, I'm very interested to know wh- what the function of these things are to the point where it, I kind of suspect that maybe we're not in our reality anymore and the flux has like warped things enough. Cause I just can't see a world in which the Mori exist in our universe when the time Lords exist. But you know, again, that's just fan stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I fully understand. Um, the, it seems like the crux of it is that the, the temple of Atropos and the planet time and the Mori exists to control the flow of time is how it's described because before they existed time just sort of run amok and was in onto itself um which is later described in this episode as time being that somebody calls time evil and that it will seek its own mm. and so yes it's like you're describing it as if it's like a force um and this idea that time itself is a sentient and malicious force that exists within the context of doctor who somehow um is a really deeply fascinating idea i don't know if chibnall's gonna have the chops to back it up um but that he's willing to play with an idea this huge is impressive in its own right um and and it gets me excited for where we could possibly go next Truly, I truly, um, especially considering, like, this episode doesn't end with any Sontar and stuff. It ends with a reverse back into the, like, the temple stuff, which reassures me that that is firmly what this story is about and what we're going to see explored in greater detail next week. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. What they have shown us of next week, obviously there's the, the next time trailer, which looks bonkers. There's a bunch of stills that they've released as well of, uh, it's described as like, you know, um, uh, time is, is making a mess or, or something. And it just looks like it, it gives me big wedding of river song vibes. <laughs> um, but good, hopefully, um, <laughs> it is where I want to end up with this. Uh, yes. I also love the shot of Yaz in her police uniform seeing, mm. uh, the, the weeping angel in her back window. Um, it makes, I was talking about this the other day. It makes sense that the weeping angels actually would be involved in this story after I was initially like, huh, you're just bringing them back? Um, because it's a time event and they are eaters of temporal, like, energy. So it makes 
much more sense than the Sontarans, for instance, for them to be in this story. Yes, yeah, completely agreed. I am a little bit confused because Yaz sees the angel in the rearview mirror <laughs> of her car, and it's like, is the angel sitting in the back seat? <laughs> like- <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it's along for a ride. I didn't know Yaz was like a taxi service now, but whatever. Well, no, no, she's in a cop outfit in that. I think it's a cop car. So she arrested it? Well, who knows? Who knows what Yaz wants to do as a cop? She's capable of more than parking disputes. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> a little throwback. Um, but no, yeah, no. Next week looks like they're fully embracing the flux stuff. I I haven't been this, like, pumped up for a next episode in, in quite some time. I cannot wait to see how batshit insane it's going to get. Um, I'm, I'm very, very here for it because this episode does introduce... You know, despite on the whole, I didn't particularly care for it. Um, what it does do right, it does so right for me. Um, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed parts of this. <laughs> uh, me too. And despite the many problems with this episode that we both have, um, I, it hasn't diminished my excitement for Doctor Who and I relish watching it next week. And I remember there was a very, there was a significant period during season 12 where you and I would just like moan to turn on an episode and loathe <laughs> watching it afterwards yeah truly this uh, for yeah we are in very very new areas here with, with chibnall um and yeah i don't know it, it's just it's it's exciting even when it's not good i, I guess this is where i'm at <laughs> absolutely oh excuse me absolutely hmm. uh what are you gonna give uh the war uh, war of the Sontarans? it's um it's a C plus for me, you know, it's just a step down from last week, um, but not too far a step. Yeah, I'm hovering between a C and a C plus. Um, that, that, that seems about right. Um, yeah, uh, I, I guess that that's it for another another installment of, of Flux. Um, one, one small side note I do want to uh, rattle off before we, before we wrap up here. Uh, the introduction of Passenger, which is <laughs> uh, Swarm's big muscly brute man, is very exciting to me. He hasn't said anything. He hasn't done anything. He's just stood around looking cool with a black hockey mask and a cool suit on. I'm very excited. Me too. Although you shared something with me which made me not so excited about him yeah there's a tweet going around the it it seems like his mask was just purchased off of wish.com uh because somebody found a listing for a mask that looks exactly the same now i haven't independently verified this uh but everyone in the comments was like oh well you know that's just the way doctor who is it's it's kind of a cheap show and i was like no, no. <laughs> like no <laughs> no it's not um look i will say though until I saw that post, and even after that post, I still think he looks fantastic. He, he's like a discount Dark Saeed from uh, Snyder's Justice League. He looks silly, but in the right way to me. Um, I, I, I just, I can't wait to see him do something. It's like Homer at the window. He's like, well, but the little guy hasn't done anything yet. That's where I'm at with uh, Passenger. <laughs> I am going to just verify it now while we're on air. It's somewhat real. There's like different styles you can get with like a Union Jack on it or a. (laughs) (gasps) No. Oh, no. I mean, that is that mask, though. Yeah. (laughs) You dirty did this, girl. (laughs) 
You dirty done to this girl. Uh well, on on that note, I think we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> yeah. Look. My, res- my yeah, my uh final comment from this episode is Doctor Who purchases mask from the internet, uses it for major villain. What will they think of next? <laughs> oh god. Um, as always, I, I have been James. You can find me on Twitter at OMGMoreJames. And I've been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheatraCallum. Uh, you know, like we said at the top of the show, please feel free to reach out and email us. Um, we, you know, you know, we've never actually had an email come through to this show. Um, we've had a couple of responses on Twitter, which have been really nice. It was good to read those out. Um, but we've never actually gotten a full blown email from a listener. So, you know, two hearts podcast at gmail.com. That's to the word to just a reminder. We're listening. <laughs> Nobody's listening. <laughs> We'll see you in a week's time for Once Upon Time. Ugh, terrible title. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Can't wait. <laughs> Until then. Uh, oh, boy. Oh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next. You done did this, girl. <laughs>